when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. Welcome back, America, to So That Happened, the HuffPost Politics Podcast about all the terrible things that happened this week. I am Arthur Delaney, joined in studio by Senior White House Communications Director Jason Lincolns. <laughs> I've got my job. That's what you billed me as like three weeks ago. Yeah, we're glad to have you back. And uh, we're joined in studio also by Timothy Carney, the commentary editor of the Washington Examiner, and he is also a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a place of uh, you know conservative scholarship. Welcome. Thank you for having me back. Oh, it's it's such a treat. So we're going to talk. We're going to do a little media criticism here and talk about a phenomenon known as anti anti Trumpism, and this is a, a sort of new idea that I think is really beginning to to congeal and become a thing. Yep. Since it was first uh, discovered, maybe back in. March. <laughs> was and and, and uh, I stumbled upon it. So you've got con- conservative uh, writers such as Tim Carney who are against the you know right criticism of the bad things that the Trump administration does, but also criticize yep. the the media. Well, yeah, I, I think a place to start is that Donald Trump is not a conservative. You remember the if you looked in the primaries, the polls would show that it was the people who were least likely to identify as conservatives. Not that they were the liberals within the party, but the non-ideological people were the Trump supporters and it proved that that was enough, that the the, the electorate wasn't – of the GOP wasn't primarily conservative, so he wins. But so he's done conservative stuff. We like Neil Gorsuch, but his whole attitude is not libertarian. It's not conservative. None of the sort of ideologies on the right fit in with it. So a lot of people on the right are very uncomfortable with Donald Trump and don't like a lot of the stuff he does. But on the other hand, we look out and we see criticism of Trump that often is idiotic or false and sometimes we criticize that. So that fits into the category of anti-anti-Trump. So in a sense, anti-anti-Trump could just be a label for well, you didn't start loving the liberal media, isn't it? Just a label <laughs> for the mainstream media, media just because consistency. I know there are people not going to well, hear but, that. But well, yeah, no, I mean, that's fair. that's why it's a debate. Yeah. Because well, there are there are people. It is a way that you could hide if you're a journalist and you're like, I don't want to criticize the Republican president because too many of my readers or listeners would get upset at me, but I can't support him. Right. So the safe harbor is to attack his critics. So if all you do is anti-anti-Trumpism, in that case, then I think that could be considered sort of hiding from the fray. And this is criticized as anti-anti-anti-Trumpism, <laughs> and it, which I think is a, a sinister, a sinister development. The three, the three antis is, is my least favorite. 
I often fall into the four antis, which is that I say, come on, we have to criticize the media when they're doing bad stuff. So if you're going to be anti, anti, anti Trump, I'm against you. So I'm anti, anti, yeah. anti, anti Trump. I'm, I'm, I think we're of similar mind on some of the stuff that's been recently happening yes. with the media, the way they've defined themselves. Um, I I sort of subscribe to the idea. I know it's hard, and I know that Twitter makes it almost illegal to do this. <laughs> but I, I do think that sometimes you have to let some shit slide. And I think that when Donald Trump is just picking a dumb fight with you, when he's just saying, oh, CNN's fake news, you have to like summon up some kind of reserve in yourself to rise above that and not engage in that petty, stupid debate. And all I see right now are journalists – like essentially deciding that yeah. they want that fight, and they don't want the fight about actually what's going on in the in, in the country anymore, and actually solving problems, actually divining truth. Right now, truth is grandstanding, right. and I'm getting tired of the grandstanding. I'm getting tired yeah. of like the the story. You know, Joe and Mika were a big story last week, yep. all because Donald Trump picked a fight with them. Yep. and I'm I'm just like, look, you know what? I got to tell you the truth. Joe and Mika aren't that great. Who cares? Who cares? I mean, he said a mean thing. It's not new. They can choose to to whine about it or they can just rise above it and just keep doing their jobs. I, I'm pro just do your job. And, I, and, and with the Joe Amica case, they actually didn't pick that much of a fight about it at it the time. Yeah, it's more like the rest of us like, talked about it. Yeah. But CNN is a different story. Totally so different. Trump tweets out this uh, idiotic little, uh, whether it's a GIF or a video, I don't know, where when Trump was in uh, wrestling and he clotheslined a dude, they put CNN's Chiron or, or logo on the guy's face. So this is Trump clotheslining CNN. It's even dumber and less worthy of response besides an eye roll. All of America rolled their – or everybody who cared about the, the dignity of the office rolled their eyes. Oh my god, I can't believe this guy's our president. But then CNN I think deliberately has tried to raise this to a big fight. And so what they're doing it's is – like the Pentagon Papers yeah, to them. They're it's becoming the, the hashtag resistance yeah. instead of doing journalism that holds him accountable. They, so they're being I think stupidly anti-Trump uh, and in a way that deserves criticism. How did they pick the fight? Well, so, I mean, first of all, if you read a, a New York Times uh, piece, I don't know whether it went up uh, Wednesday night or Thursday morning, but it's um, it's here's the cable network that decided to take on the president. So sitting for that profile, first of all, is one of it. Yeah. But then you, you go out there and uh, they send their investigative reporter, Andrew Kaczynski, out to dig up the uh, identity of this guy, of the, the the weird random Twitter guy who may or may not have the, made the this Reddit video. user the who Reddit went user. by Han Asshole Solo. Which why not just be Han Asholo? Yeah, so the we guy, can quibble with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, that might be a minor I'm, point. I'm totally with you on that. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but, so that, but it turned out that this was a guy who had posted a uh, like a roster of. CNN oh, yeah. personnel uh, with, with, stars, with of stars of David as well as other other racist stuff which went missed by everybody until they went out and found it <laughs> yes and so what we've got is then they go further and you have guys like uh, Jim Acosta going out there and just whenever possible having these loud fights with Trump he is a, a White House reporter White House who reporter. stands up in the front row yeah and he and it's one of the reasons these guys want the cameras so much is so that they can appear taking on 
Trump and maybe they'll use it in a promo for CNN. We yeah. stood up to Trump. And then he goes ahead and calls uh, Trump fake news for saying, hey, they said that all 17 intelligence agencies thought that this was going on, but it was really just four. And then Acosta says, I don't know where he's getting that number for. Trump was right. And where he was getting that number was the correction run by the New York Times when they had that error early. Acosta actually called Trump fake news for saying something true for correcting an error error by a previous left leaning journal. So, so he, right now, that what you just said was anti anti Trump. Yeah. So I'm being anti anti Trump by criticizing CNN's bad coverage. It's bad because it's false. It's bad because it engages in name calling. And it's bad because they're sending their investigative reporters instead of after the immense conflicts of interest that Trump has going on with all his businesses or the, you know, the the crappy stuff going on in his administration. They're sending it after a random Reddit user. And instead of asking difficult questions that we deserve answers to, they're grandstanding. So yeah. now uh, it seems like a lot of this debate actually is about journalism branding. I think th- so. There have been two notable examples. The Washington Post called itself <laughs> they made its they made their slogan on the front page democracy dies in darkness, which is sort of corny and cheesy. And I laugh every time I see yeah, it. Yeah, but I guess they're selling newspapers. Like you want them to try and yeah. sell newspapers. I love it. Everybody should buy newspapers and uh, support advertisers of yeah. media. But no, there, no, no, there's one other example, and I and Tim Carney talked about it, and I specifically wanted to ask him about it, which was the New York Times saying the truth is the tr- more uh, important now than ever. Exactly, or something truth, to that effect. More important now than ever. Um, and the the clear logical implication of this and maybe i'm being sort of a, a pedant here but the clear logical implication of this is that the truth was less important before now which is crazy which means during obama it wasn't as important and if you ask me i could come up with a dozen things that i thought were really important that the obama administration did wrong that people like the washington post and the new york times give never us reported two on. real quick so the washington post for it so i followed lobbying was my main beat for the last eight years the washington post never mentioned they would report that obama had a lobbying ban they never mentioned that the chief of staff at the treasury department was a goldman sachs lobbyist up until a couple months before he went there in passing they mentioned that this guy worked at goldman sachs when they were pointing out that tim geithner would sometimes pick up his tab even though this guy was a lot richer um but but that was obviously a big plan and then just in the new york times generally you didn't have all again my beat was lobbying all of these things uh, the um the general counsel at the irs was a former lobbyist for the um for the Swiss Bankers Association, okay, so, so, uh, the not- IRS, uh, hi- Obama hired at the IRS a CEO of H and R Block to write regulations on smaller tax preparers that profited H and R Block. I wrote on this, so they did. They did stories trumpeting the lobbying ban, but did not. We're not vigilant about. Policing uh, the exceptions. Poli- okay, and what? And what? What's one other thing? That's a good example. Uh, outside of that. Um, well, a lobbying's my. Well, that's beat, a good so example. Two no, that's so, so, really so examples. now I see why you would say. The implication of that slogan is you're the tr- you didn't consider the truth to be important in the past. But yeah. isn't the clear context that we have the lyingest president yes. in world history? Yeah. Yeah. All all politicians lie, but Trump seems to do it with a frequency in a manner and to a degree more than any president we've ever had. Yeah, Did now, you hear how he said that? Did you hear how his pulse never quickened <laughs> yeah. and how his voice never rose? Do you hear how easy it is? It's easy to say the things that are easy. You don't need to grant about right. it. That are true. Can I just point out something before we move on? The, the New York Times made a big deal about how Trump Trump's election drove their subscriber base up. They bragged about that. You know, They actually spit out press releases. That was like 
a news story they reported so, on. So did the this like, week? That was a this big week, story. They're laying. They're they're they might be imminent. Imminent layoffs are coming to the New York Times. Potentially half of their copy at a desk. So if the truth really does matter more than ever, why are they laying off their copy editors after having the subscription success? Second thing I'll say is that with with regard to CNN. It really cheapens their argument about transparency when all they're using their transparency to do is to is to wail on the president yeah. in this fashion. Once you've got the cameras back, your mode should be now I'm back to doing what I did on the level, straight on the level, because that is where you demonstrate the value of having those cameras in the room to ordinary people. When yeah. ordinary people are just seeing you just rant – at whoever the poor White House press secretary is, you know they've got thankless jobs, and neither of them are particularly good at it. But when it's just when it just becomes this kind of stupid soap opera back and forth, it alienates people. It absolutely alienates. Does people. it? That's, does that, it? Or it, do they, don't they? No, it does. No, it, it, it alienates does. some, but it revs up. I mean, what if we're in journalism's an industry, right? You just need, you know, a few tens of thousands, hundreds, some tiny fraction of the American population needs to buy your good for you to be doing incredibly well. Um, and so I do think it's incredibly alienating. And this is why Trump has so much success with these things he says that sound crazy to me at first. They, they are the enemy of the people. And then you see they sick their investigative reporter on finding some random dude on Reddit. Right. You remember and, in the Iraq war how like we all made fun of the Iraqi Scud missiles because they couldn't hit shit? Yeah. All right. So like finding that Reddit dude was CNN firing a Scud missile. <laughs> it landed nowhere important. Yeah. It absolutely had nothing to do with normal people's lives. No one cares about it. It does doesn't explain a story about what's going on in America. It's entirely self-referential bullshit. Do death threats and and, uh, harassment not emanate from these internet fever swamps where this guy was hanging out? Or or is that not uh, a, a real problem? Man, it's... Maybe it's not. I'm honestly asking. It's not a problem that was invented... At, you need to talk to some women who have been on Twitter. Yeah. Being harassed and, and, and being and, and being threatened on the internet is not something that Donald Trump invented. Maybe he foments it a little bit. But I think he, he could, does. But but there's a there's a role we could all play in lowering the temperature there. Well, yeah. so my 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 point is this: the stuff Trump says about the media being the enemy, it's irresponsible, it's bad, and it's worse than annoying. I think. Yeah. And again, maybe I'm biased because I'm a journalist, but. It gets fed legitimacy by behavior like what we've seen from CNN this week. Yeah, conflict de-escalation may be a little bit underrated as a strategy you know, here. And it probably it, gets poor ratings. Probably a lot of people didn't see this, but Michael Che, who's part of SNL's Weekend Update team, um, wrote a thing on Facebook this week. When he talk, we're talking about Joe and Mika. And he was just like – he was like, you know what? Cable news is bad, and they sensationalize stuff, and they do stuff wrong. And Trump's not wrong about that. And when he makes a joke about Joe and Mika, it's funny. And the thing – he was like, Donald Trump, all he has to do is just prove that his tormentors aren't perfect. Yeah, I, I, to- I said I said, I'll grab a woman by the pussy, but you have a lisp. And now the CN- – and, and now the reporters <laughs> go out there and like defend their right to have a lisp. And like Che is just like, it's all funny. It's funny and you have to accept that it's funny and it's going to work for him. And his recommendation is like the media should just cover Donald Trump's policies because it would drive him crazy to not constantly be sicking for a fight every time he wants one. All right. Jason Lincolns, thank you for – being here. Tim Carney, thank you as well. We'll be right back. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. And we're back. This is Arthur Delaney again. I'm here with Elise Foley. What's up? And HuffPost Senior White House Correspondent S.V. Date. Hey there. Hello. So Donald Trump, the President of the United States, has gone to Europe again. You traveled with him on his previous trip. Well, I met up with him. I don't think I traveled with him, per se, but yeah. You were there. All right. Well, you were there. You were like covering the trip, right? That's true. Okay. And so you've been covering this one, too. And something he did was go to Europe and insult or denigrate our intelligence agencies. What happened? Yeah, well, he was there, and uh, this was not the prepared speech, by the way. The prepared speech that other people write for him and which he reads off a teleprompter, right? So he doesn't typically make those kind of mistakes there. This was in a in a rare Q&A session, which he hasn't done much of anymore, uh, what they call a 2 plus 2 news conference with the Polish uh, president. And – he said, well, what do you think? You're going to meet with, with uh, Vladimir Putin, and are you, uh, are you going to tell him to not interfere in our elections? And he was, well, you know, maybe it was Russia. Maybe it was some other countries too. Which countries? I don't want to say. And so he's still back to maybe, maybe it wasn't Russia. Maybe our intelligence services got it all wrong, even though the consensus view is that it was Russia, number one, and number two, they wanted him to win specifically wanted him to win. And maybe that's the problem here. So he's about to meet uh, at this time with Vladimir Putin, right. the president of Russia. What is the significance of him making this comment right before this meeting is supposed to happen? Right. Well, one number one, it's it was done in Poland, which is, in fact, another country. And typically, the president doesn't go to other places and then criticize folks from home while he's there. This, that's kind of unusual that he would denigrate the intelligence services of which he is boss. Let's remember this, that he now runs the intelligence services, and yet he thinks that they made this giant error. And how does he point this out? Well, look what they did with the Iraq war. They said there's weapons of mass destruction. They got that wrong, and what a mess. And gee, so how can we trust him? You know, I mean, this is uh, six months now, six months since he was basically told, yes, it was Russia, and they wanted you. So how do we move from that? And his his stance so far is, well, why do we have to move from that at all? We're still back on the first question. Now, when President Obama traveled to Europe, a lot of people here complained that he was doing essentially what you just said Donald Trump is doing, that he was uh, apologizing for America. 
Right. And How that, is this different from that? I, I think what President Obama did was say, you know, our attitude as a country over decades has been perhaps uh, hypocritical in some ways or um, we've been asking people to do things and unwilling to make changes ourselves, which is a little bit different from saying that this particular agency is wrong about this particular fact. Uh, and Republicans pounded Obama for years about this apology tour. And you got to remember now, after the apology tour, our foreign policy wasn't all that different, particularly when it came to Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, we pulled out of both those places largely, but it took years. Guantanamo is still open. So notwithstanding what he said he was going to do, it, it, it wasn't all that different. And that was one of the reasons that people even in Europe were disappointed in the end with his presidency. Did he make new ground on his uh, NATO bashing or was it the same NATO bashing? No, it was it was relatively the same NATO bashing. But he did say finally that, yeah, we're fully committed to Article 5, which is the self – the mutual defense clause in the NATO charter. He had not said that when he was actually at NATO in May. He uh, he was at a memorial for the 9-11 attacks and he failed to point out that he would support that, that so this, clause. Yeah. On this second trip to Europe, President Trump is not changing – U.S. foreign policy away from NATO. There's not a, a Trump doctrine emerging where NATO is increasingly diminished. It's it's just the way it was before. Right. We're, we're status quo. I mean, there's been a rift in his administration. There are folks who want to maybe even pull out of NATO. And there are some who say, you know, this is madness. Russia is is expanding again. And so we need to stick with our allies and our friends. And so at, at this moment, it seems that the old old guard, the old-fashioned folks who believe in NATO are, are, have the upper hand because he did, in fact, say that, you know, we believe in this. And you're not paying enough, but we believe in this. Now, North Korea fired an in intercontinental ballistic missile, which uh, people are real worried about because it could theoretically reach the United States and Alaska, Hawaii. Does the Does the Europe trip – offer an opportunity for him to Im improve that situation with North Korea? Well, perhaps. Uh, G20 includes South Korea and it includes Japan, both of whom have a much more uh, immediate interest in what North Korea does than even the United States does. So, yeah, this was an incremental improvement over the last missile, which could go probably, you know, a couple of thousand nautical miles less than this new one. But this has been a trend. This has been something that's been happening over time, over decades. They've been gradually improving the reliability and the range of their of their delivery systems, right? And so now it's a matter for them to improve their, their really bad stuff, the, the warheads. And those are technical problems. So this is not tomorrow they could do something very bad. But it's not getting any better. Does it matter that Trump's tweeting weird stuff at the president of North Korea? <laughs> <laughs> well, why should the president of North Korea be left out, right? Because everyone else gets tweeted at angrily. Uh, is, 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 what, what does this guy have nothing to do? Right, yeah. Such a weird thing to say. But he's been tweeting odd things about North Korea since before he was even president. You remember on January 2nd, he said, not going to happen when, you know, about a, a missile test yeah. and, and about the – range of eventually reaching the United States. So that has happened. And so the tweets didn't help. And that his own administration has been telling him, look, 
this requires a thoughtful response and then and getting angry and and banging out 140 characters maybe isn't the best way to conduct all these policy. other countries are on twitter right like they see they do monitor it's it not yes just they are aware the media of it. Yes. looking at trump's twitter account that's true did they have they learned not to take it seriously we have not learned that here i don't know that that's a correct lesson yeah i'm not sure that it is either i mean the white house did tell us that the tweets are official presidential statements and in fact the his lawyers incorporated a couple of his tweets in a response to the to the United States House of Representatives when they made a, a query for some documents. So other lawyers bring those up too when they fight him <laughs> on the travel ban. So Absolutely. Right, haven't his own tweets been used against yeah. him in, in successful legal arguments? Yep, absolutely. I mean, the I think the idea that they are, wouldn't be official White House statements is crazy. But but no. isn't that that's what allies of the White House say? Like, oh, he's just spouting off on Twitter. Yeah. It's just Twitter. These are maybe rhetorical allies and not people who are in serious positions <laughs> of power. Well, now I, I remember that White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer pretty early on got angry when we in the media pointed out a tweet that the president had issued earlier in the day that was <laughs> perhaps a, at odds with something that Sean Spicer said and, and from the podium. And Spicer's, here I am talking to you guys and you're comparing it to a tweet. Same Sean Spicer a couple months later. Well, yes, these are from the president and therefore they are presidential statements. I like how you said it was a tweet he issued rather than a tweet he tweeted. <laughs> Did you like, it sounds yeah. ridiculous. It doesn't it? <laughs> Post it, Post it is. But it is Post an official – think of it as an official presidential statement delivered via 140 characters on Twitter. So, yeah. uh, Sharish, one reason I was excited to talk to you about the current Euro trip is you went on this last one and, and you wrote a piece – in which you argued essentially that contrary to the rise of these economic populists here and there, that actually the world is becoming a better and better place. Right, which is a very unpopular view, I guess, pretty much everywhere, particularly I think in this newsroom. But it has by any objective measure. I mean there are fewer people at war. Mm-hmm. It really is true. I mean if you look at the world as a whole, fewer people are getting killed in conflicts. Uh, fewer children are dying at, you know, in, in early years. Uh, more women are getting high school and college educations, even in places where that never happened. We're on, you know, we're how close to getting solar power solve so much of our energy needs as a world, not just as a, as a country. I mean, come on, guys. It isn't that bad. It, things are way better than they were 30 years ago, 50 years ago, certainly more than a few hundred years ago. Yeah, how close what are is the we? whining? How close are we to getting solar power to do everything for us? I saw that Al Gore had said something to this effect recently and figured, well, that's Well, he probably stole it from my piece, but yeah. <laughs> so how, how fragile is this progress? Uh, how how badly could a global war, say, starting with North Korea, jeopardize? Well, that, yeah, right. That would put a crimp on things now, wouldn't it? Because that would uh, undo it? some of the progress. Oh, no, absolutely. And that is a danger. I mean, ever since this dawn of the nuclear age, we've been able to, we as a species have been able to just do very, very bad things to ourselves. Uh, far worse than anything that could possibly happen over the course of, uh, you know, a gradual change in the in the climate or something like that. It's, so it still seems unlikely that a uh, a Korean conflict, which would entail hundreds of thousands possibly casualties, would ever expand to World War II scale, though, where you had tens of millions of people right. slaughtered. Well, you know, remember in the last two World Wars, there were big, serious countries with 
you know, some maybe unwise entanglements that, that started things. And then in the Second World War, you had kind of a, a maniacal guy who wanted to take over the planet. Neither of those is true with North Korea. Yeah, he's kind of nuts, but he's North Korea. What is he going to do? I mean, they have no economy. They're not going to take over anything. So in, in that sense, things are a lot easier to contain, I think, than in some of the Or a, a Russia-U.S. proxy war that could potentially – develop into something else, for instance, starting with you know the two planes crashing into each other over the Baltic Sea or something like that. You're, you're, you're bullish on well, the situation well, still. You know, bad things can always happen, right? Yeah. An asteroid could come out of nowhere. But the, the trend is a good one, and I think we forget that. We, all of us, forget that sometimes when you know we're caught up in the day-to-day. Oh, uh, well, this podcast default position is that everything is terrible and we endorsed the <laughs> asteroid we had the asteroid it is no, the it... position that it's getting worse though because no. everything could be terrible and getting better uh at least that's under his framing as per- well perfect clarification it was more terrible previously we endo- we endorsed the sweet meteor of death prior to election day and his <laughs> voters just didn't show up so that happens <laughs> well russia meddled that's why russia meddled thanks russia so I have a question, an important question about Trump's trip. Is there going to be another orb? <laughs> no orb, no more, I don't think. I, I, since, the, uh, since the Baltic states made fun of his orb <laughs> with a soccer ball, probably no more orbs. All right. SV Date and Elise Foley, thank you so much for coming on the So That Happened podcast. It was great to be here. We'll be right back. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Dave Jameson. Good to be here, Arthur. And Elise Foley. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I wanted to talk to you guys about the economic populist, Donald Trump, who rode to the White House on promises to benefit the working man and woman. And I wondered, uh, Dave, what's Donald Trump been doing for the working man in recent weeks? And woman. One of the, the big questions hanging over the their economic agenda is what they were going to do about this big overtime reform that happened. Before Obama left office, he made this this huge reform that was going to bring overtime protections to like millions of more people. How does that work? So right now, most folks in America who work on salary yeah. are not entitled to overtime pay. Overtime pay is like a completely foreign concept to people – who come up in salaried type white collar jobs uh, and also blue collar jobs, people who are like managers in retail settings, people who work in dollar stores and fast food restaurants. The way the laws are written, they're really favorable to employers. It gives them a lot of ways to carve out workers from the overtime protection. So, so if you're on a salary, of, you're not – this overtime protection for more than 40 hours a week of labor just doesn't apply to you. And if you're a manager, it doesn't apply to you. Uh, you know, the short answer is, is yeah, that's right. The way the law is written, to oversimplify things a little bit, there's this salary threshold, right? Where if you make more than that threshold as a, as a salaried worker, then you probably aren't entitled to overtime pay. And the threshold is super low because of where the Bush administration put it. It's just – it's a little under $24,000. Oh. So we don't know a whole lot of salaried workers who 
make that little. If you're making that kind of money, you're probably an hourly worker making 10, 11, 12 bucks and you're getting overtime if you work overtime. But because that salary threshold is so low, the estimates are like only 7% of salaried workers in the U.S. now actually are are legally entitled to overtime pay. Because a company can just be like, this worker is yeah. a salary man. You make $24,100, you are not entitled to overtime pay. Which would be... There, you know, it's interesting. When I That's the way the law has been for many years. And when I was like in my early 20s in the mid-2000s, people at like low-rung jobs in journalism and nonprofits and stuff... People, everyone came in and their salary was like $25,000. Well, that wasn't like – there was actually a reason for that, it turns out. It's because if you get somebody right around there, then you don't have to give them overtime pay. So, And overtime pay is time and time a half, and a half extra yeah. money If you work hour. more than 40 hours in a week, you get time and a half pay for those extra hours. So – um, the whole idea of overtime, there's a, f- a few ideas in it economically. One is, you know, extra work at somebody extra pay, right? You want to discourage people. This goes back to the Great Depression. You want to discourage employers from overworking people. But it's also by building in that time and a half, that premium, uh, it's the idea is to spread the work around too. So if I am working Arthur, if I'm your manager, God forbid, um, <laughs> I work you up to 40 hours if I'm going to work you another 10, I'm going to be paying time and a half on that, and it's going to get ins- expensive. So instead of doing that, maybe I'll just hire a lease and give her those those 10 hours. Great. And see how that goes. And maybe it turns out a lease is a better worker than Arthur. Anyway. I don't like where I this mean, is going at all. <laughs> it's objectively so, true. So, so what did Obama do? So Obama changed that salary threshold. You know, it was just like I said, it was right around $24,000, which is really low. They basically roughly doubled it to right around 48000 which is a big leap. But the, the upshot of that is all those salaried workers who were making before between 24000 and 48000 um, suddenly a lot of those people are going to be getting overtime pay. And the people in that, in that basket there, you're talking about the middle class, you know? Um, and this is a federal rule, so it's all around the country. And, it was an esti- the White House estimated like four million people would be would get new protections. There were other other estimates by think tanks and such that that you know extrapolated an even bigger number. Four million is not a tiny number. It is not workforce a tiny is like one hundred fifty yeah. million people. And I mean, it seems like employers might have a good incentive to just bring everybody up over that number anyway, so they don't have to deal with it. Right? Exactly, <laughs> then and they don't have to track it. What's really interesting is that is exactly what was happening once Obama did this rule, even though it was in going to be in legal limbo eventually. A lot of employers made that decision. And I, I talked to a lot of workers who they got a raise from 42000 to 48000 And the whole idea was that the employer just didn't want to have to worry about doing overtime. And they knew if they got them up to 48000 that they could keep working them 50 or 60-hour a week sometimes. And the workers were fine with that, you know. Um, but, you know, there were there – were, um, Employers responded in different ways. Most people I talked to, this was a good thing for the workers. There were some who got hosed by it, some whose res- employers responded just by by switching them to hourly. Mm. Um, and they didn't like that because it, it changed their benefits and that sort of thing. And then they'd have to be clocking in, clocking out. So it bounced a few different ro- ways, right? And it wasn't great for everybody, but it was good for a lot of people. Um, and it, more, you know, in my opinion, this is like it was more in the spirit of what the law was supposed to be, right? Like, it had been stagnating, basically. Yes, it had been stagnating for many years. And I, I don't think you could like honestly look around and say that only one in 
18, you know, salaried workers should really deserve overtime pay in, in this country. It just seems really off to me. So, you know, the reforms uh, uh, seem to make sense. But, of course, an election happened. And the business groups hated this thing from the jump, especially retail and restaurants, because they were going to get whacked by this. Because for years and years, they just didn't have to worry about overtime pay, basically, for all their managers and stuff. And now they were going to have to worry about it. So there was a lawsuit. Uh, judge put a stay against it. It didn't go into effect. And then Donald Trump was elected president. So it was left up to the Trump administration whether they were going to keep going to bat for this. And they, they tipped their hand last week that they are, they are not going to do that. In like a legal brief. There was a court yeah. filing, you know, that, that, that it was up to them whether or not they were going to defend the reforms Obama did. And they declined to do that. It just strikes me as contrary to the, uh, the, the image of Donald Trump as like a working man's champion. This is a really politically tricky one for them. I mean, obviously, they've gotten away with a million unpopulous things since taking office. But here you're you're talking about like not not giving overtime protections to four million people who thought they were going to get it. And so it's uh, it's a bad spot they're in. And it was interesting what they did, uh, how they address this in court. Like I said, they did not defend Obama's specific reforms, but they actually defended like the rationale and methodology behind what they did. Basically, what they were doing was they were arguing to reserve the right to do reforms the way Obama did. And what I think that means is that they're going to do their own type of reform with this law. It's just not going to be as generous to workers as what Obama did. Now, the overtime reform is a big deal because Barack Obama was one of the first presidents in out of several in a row who did not raise sign a, uh, a minimum wage increase. That's right. Yeah. Since Reagan, it's kind of crazy. So where are minimum wage levels going now? Is there any momentum for that? Do you think Trump would be into that kind of thing? We've said it's gotten in this weird place with the minimum wage where you have all of these states and cities running way out far ahead and doing it themselves. And you've got nothing happening uh, in Congress. The Republicans, have they don't even let the minimum wage come up for, for a vote. And it's kind of funny because the minimum wage is super popular. People love the idea of raising it, and that's bipartisan. It's got a lot of independent support and even a good amount of Republican support when you're talking about voters, not not people in office. It's like seven twenty five an hour, right? Yeah. Federal minimum it wage. Is. It is. It is seven twenty five per hour. It hasn't been raised since 2009. And it wasn't Obama who raised it in 2009. It was actually George W. Bush. That was a, a holdover from a bill he signed. So it hasn't been – we're going on, uh, what, eight eight years now without a, a minimum wage raise, and that's, that's a long time. And seven twenty five ain't ain't a lot of money, and that applies anywhere where a state has not done its own higher minimum wage. But a lot of states have gone ahead and done that. Now it's it's more than thirty, uh, because people in all these you know even in a lot of red states, they think Congress is out out of touch on this issue. But it really it has not hurt Republicans like electorally to to just not do anything about this. Isn't that a little surprising given the? Popularity among Republican voters for minimum wage. I mean, I guess it's just not the biggest issue people are thinking about, right? Yeah. yeah. Even though you would think that it would it would be for a lot of people. That's you their would. paycheck. Yeah, I mean, in twenty, uh, you know, during the last election and the midterms, looking at the numbers, it just seemed like, despite the popularity of this issue, like people love they love doing the voting on the referendums. I don't think it like was a huge turnout driver and i don't think it like really affects 
the way people look up and down the ballot. That's like my – that's the way I see it like as, as, in talking to people about this issue. But there's this idea on the left that like you know getting the minimum wage on the ballot is going to – you know, help get more Democrats elected. I just, that obviously just hasn't happened. Now in uh, Washington, in Seattle, they actually jacked the minimum wage up to $15, which is like the national goal. Yeah. So the fight for 15, you know, which people have probably heard of, that's the the union backed campaign in fat that started in fast food to get this $15 minimum wage all over the place. And it's like, Obviously, kind of an arbitrary number. Where did 15 come from? You're going to get like different answers on that. It's a nice square number. It's a nice square number. Fight for 15. Sounds nice with fight. Yeah. Has a great ring yeah. to it. Um, <laughs> and whether or not that's the best way to like set broad policy is like a whole other debate. But 15 like became a rallying cry. And um, Seattle was the first major city to actually enact a $15 minimum wage. And it was like staggered out over time. And uh, it was passed, I think, 2013 or so. And now we're starting to get up around $15 at these at large employers there. And so it's like the first kind of test case. How, how's it going? Well, um, so there was a, a study out done by University of Washington researchers that um, was not helpful to the minimum to the pro minimum wage fight for 15 crowd. It found that. There were job that there were um, hours were reduced among low wage workers uh, enough that it reduced overall earnings for an individual worker on average one hundred twenty five dollars a month. So this was like a really damaging study uh, for the fight for fifteen crowd, with the caveat that a lot of people are are having problems with the methodology, and there seem to be fair complaints with that. Well, uh, in the first place. The studies on the effect of higher minimum wage were already all over the place. Yeah. So it's not I've, like a total shock that another one has come in with uh, sort of bad bad results for people who favor the idea of higher minimum wage. Like whatever your political persuasion is and your, your ideology, you can find ample studies to back up whatever your thoughts are on the minimum wage, whether it whether it's showing that it doesn't do anything to employment or that it, you know, that it, that it hurts hurts hours and hurts low wage workers. There's the, the studies are are all over the place on that. What's interesting now is like you've we've got like real laboratories. We've never had like such dramatic increases, right? In the real world, usually they've always been pretty small and incremental. But now you have cities that have passed these fifteen dollar measures. So in a place like Seattle, we get to see what happens over the course of three years when you hike hike the wage floor, you know, more than thirty percent or whatever is happening. So we're getting to see in real time. And this was one study, and and it um it showed negative effects of doing that and and it and it sh- and it it shows that it reduced earnings for the workers that they were trying to help but who knows there's going to be more and more studies coming out and i wouldn't be surprised if there was you know conflicting you know conflicting uh, returns on all of this but and we're going to see it in, in more in more cities too you know san francisco's got one um new york New York State is moving it to 15 for for fast food workers. Um, so you've got all this stuff happening, and we're going to start seeing what happens because of it. And you know, I think you know the 15 is this round number that's that's being thrown out all over the place. Is it right for every city? Probably not. You know, can Topeka handle 15 tomorrow? 
not as well as Seattle could, yeah. you know? So, um, so we're going to start seeing, you know, very soon what the real effects are from all this. All right. Dave Jameson, labor reporter. Thank you for telling us about this stuff. Thanks for having me. Elise Foley, thank you for being here as well. We'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we were joined by the Washington Examiner's Tim Carney. Our HuffPost colleagues, Elise Foley, Dave Jameson, and S.V. Date, as well as former So That Happened host, Jason Lincolns. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. Don't be shy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.